So, um, let's delve into Mark. I'm just going to read through this passage and then give a little bit of a, an introduction to the book um, and then a little bit of an introduction to the passage. Sorry, hold, hold it here. There we go. Uh, so, let's read through this passage. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then a quote from Isaiah after, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Uh, which I think, as far as prologues go, is a pretty epic prologue. You might have seen Star Wars prologues. I always like to imagine these beginnings of Gospels <laughs> flying off into the cosmos. Um, and I think if that's the end of it, that's, that's pretty exciting. So I'm going to um, just introduce Mark um, to you and, and what he's doing in his Gospel and what he's doing in this um, little section. So... We, this is the first line, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark is not holding back. He is not um, keeping a mystery about who Jesus is. He quite plainly puts Jesus' titles. He is the Messiah, which is anointed, king, chosen, the Son of God. Here he is. And this actually is the last, the first and last time um, throughout this gospel that we hear Mark's personal opinion. Most of this gospel um, is Jesus presenting himself and then people reacting to him. And you get kind of Jesus and who he thinks he is and who everyone else thinks he is. And spoiler alert, people around him don't often come off particularly well. Um, they often don't get it. And Mark creates this drama that he, to avoid confusion, sets it up with what he thinks and what his message is. Um, and so that's where we begin. So Mark is the earliest of the Gospels. Um, if you ever try and study uh, Greek to read the Bible, Mark is always the one they set you off on because unlike Luke, who's very academic, and John, who's a theologian, Mark's quite a simple guy, um, and so his language is really, really simple. So if it, it sounds hard when you read it in English, but it's just very nice, simple language. He was just a disciple, he was lo- most likely a disciple of Peter, and so he sort of listened to Peter's stories and then went and can sort of interview various other people. Um, but he is just desperate to tell this story of Jesus, um, the Son of Man and Jesus, the Son of God, as is revealed in the first verse. Uh, and so he is talking about um, this anointed king, uh, the promise. Uh, saviour who has finally arrived. The king is here, as the title of um, this sermon is. And he, um, he paints this picture of this urgency. Um, he, and we'll see as he starts his gospel how he does this. But he has this sense of apocalypse, which might sound to us like a word that describes fire and brimstone and horror. Um, but apocalypse just means revealed, the truth being revealed. And for Mark, that is what is happening in this. Um, it's almost you've got to imagine the kind of the sort of um, 
this invisible realm of heaven descending and sort of settling on the earth, um, where we have this sort of normal physical world and this insane, exciting spiritual realm appearing and sort of fizzling into the atmosphere and sort of a kind of science fiction-esque epic vision. And this is the urgency of Mark's Gospel, and this is how we begin. So today we're going to unpack a couple of things. Um, we're going to talk about how this really is good news, um, and how this, uh, in this Gospel, Mark unpacks lots of elements of the good news, which is the whole series, the breadth of the Gospel, and obviously we're not going to tackle the entire breadth. Uh, but we are going to tackle two different things, um, and we're going to focus on this idea of the old meeting the new, things being overturned, things being rewritten, um, things being re-understood. And we're going to use John the Baptist and the thing he talks about baptism as our focus um, and draw some ideas out of that. So, um, let's go to who John the Baptist is. So he's Jesus' cousin. Uh, he would have known Jesus at that time of him growing up. He's a close personal friend of Jesus. When he's eventually killed, um, sorry about the spoiler, but that's has <laughs> been around for 2,000 years, so I'm sorry. Um, but he, uh, when he does eventually die, Jesus is absolutely heartbroken. This is a close personal friend. You often see in the Gospels the difference in relationship between Jesus and his disciples and then Jesus and his childhood friends. He's, he's a very different person, and that really shows his humanity. Um, his status as a teacher was fairly common. Um, it was fairly common to have rabbis and teachers um, who sort of went around with their, um, their kind of like their ideas and their message. But there's something unique about John, and that's his um, his living in the wild and eating insects. And you kind of think, why have Mark included this? It's such an odd detail. I love the Bible. It's such surreal detail that it, it includes. Um, and there are various uh, explanations. Some of the early church fathers who were writing in the sort of second, third, fourth century like to take every single word and find layers and layers of symbolism. So you get all these ideas like, oh, well, he eats honey because he speaks sweet words. And, you know, he doesn't live a life of cooking and cleaning because he's, he's symbolising how Jesus is going to lighten all our burdens. And there's all these lovely um, images. And these may or may not be true. Um, there, there is elements of, um, of truth in them. Uh, but one thing's for certain is that um, John the Baptist is very much meant to be the prophet Elijah, or a symbol of the prophet Elijah, and that's very, very important. This description of him wearing this particular attire is meant to, and Mark is deliberately doing this, saying he's John the Baptist, but he is Elijah. Um, he, is, he is here. And this is very, very significant, because Elijah, who is a prophet from the Old Testament, is only supposed to arrive to bring about the return of the Messiah. He is supposed to come and pave the way for the Messiah to return. To the point where uh, Jewish people at Passover will set a table, a space for Elijah, to wait for the Messiah to return. There will be a space here in case he turns up and decides to grace them at their specific table. Um, they are waiting for him. So the presence of Elijah means the king has come, the Messiah has come. And so Mark is sticking this right at the start of his gospel to make this very, very, very clear point. Um, and so what Mark's done is he's meshed a bit from Isaiah, um, which has already come up as a theme, and a bit from Malachi, um, which is another book of the Old Testament. But he's taken it um, from this section here. So we read, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, 
Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall sit together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now here you've got this vision of things being literally overturned, mountains being flattened. The whole earth is going to shake with change. Something is coming which is huge and different. And if you look in particular that last bit where it says all flesh it together, this is particularly important because this isn't just the Jewish people. Um, when this verse was written, which is three to four hundred years before Jesus, um, this isn't just referring to the Jewish people, this is referring to everyone. All flesh, all people will be invited. Everyone will be affected by this. This goes beyond the boundaries of any human kingdom or politics. This is everyone. And so in this sense, this passage is acting as a bridge between the old and the new. The old kingdom, the old prophecies, the old testament, the old covenant, the old promise, and the new. And bringing it all in is Jesus, the Messiah, the key player of bringing about this new kingdom. So, what else can we learn from John the Baptist? He points towards Jesus, and this is so important because if you sort of look up, if you were to, and I did this because I thought it would be an interesting experiment, if you were to Google, oh, what can we learn from John the Baptist? A lot of the messages are teachings, moral development, he's a moral exemplar, he's a, he's a humble, he's forsaken worldly possessions, um, and yes, those are good encouragements, but the main thing about John is that he points towards Jesus, not himself, not his own achievements. He just points and makes the way for Jesus. He rests on Jesus, and that is what makes him amazing. He didn't need to focus being this or that because he is solely resting on Jesus. Remember, he would have had a following. He would have had his own kind of ministry, as it were, and yet for him, it's all about pointing towards this Messiah, pointing towards uh, this Jesus. And that is one of the most um, liberating messages here. And this is going to come up through the rest of this talk. This idea that it's not about this um, purification as a word we're going to use a lot. It's not about character development and discipline. This story is about someone who just points to Jesus. Um, and in doing so, has found himself a huge, huge role to play in this divine narrative. So, the second thing we can learn about John is that he is a new prophet. Um, now, a prophet is someone who is in the Old Testament. They have a specific office. Uh, they're appointed by God. You all know some of the famous ones. Jonah, particularly famous one. Um, they have a role. They speak out Isaiah as a prophet. Um, Elijah is a prophet. And they have this job of being the mouthpiece of God. They sort of come in and they look at Israel and all the disasters that are going on and they say, what are you doing? Turn around. This, if you do this, this is going to happen. And they prophesy about the future. And they sort of act as this uh, voice. And they're a necessary part of the ancient kingdom. They play a really important role. This is how God speaks and communicates to his people. But here, John, who is acting very much like a prophet, as we know from how he's described, um, that he is opening a new way of being a prophet. Because God has not just spoken to him from a distance. Jesus is his friend. The Son of God has grown up with him, their friend. And the Son of God not only has spoken to John, but he's about to turn up himself and actually speak to the people himself. Which massively changes the relationship between people and God. And so he signifies this disruption, again, between the old and the new. Some people have described him as sort of having a foot in the Old Testament and a foot in the New Testament. Mark is creating this bridge. The king is here, everything is about to change. 
Now, John, what he promises is um, something remarkable. He's doing this baptism and he's promising that God himself is going to come and he is going to purify people himself. Um, he's not going to offer other rituals. He's going to do the purif- purification himself. Um, and so John is representing this change from these kind of rules and customs that you have to follow for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins, to something that's going to change the inside, that's going to change your heart. And again, it's pointing uh, to all of these ideas. Now, I think this is why it's really important that this view of John um, needs to be challenged, that he's just a moral exemplar, because of course he is. Uh, but he is pointing towards the reality of the new kingdom, which is not about being a moral exemplar. This is about allowing God to meet us and to dwell in us, and that changing everything in an instance. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a complete um, shift in perspective. I want us to have a little look at this um, verse here. So this is from a character called Jerome, who's sort of like second century thinker, and I just really liked what he said about this. He says, the old law is in the penitent hair of the desert camel, referring to John the Baptist, I suppose. And the coming of grace is in the tunic of the lamb. And I just love that imagery, that the old law, penitent, apologising, living in the desert, living a kind of life of restriction, is about to end and make way for this uh, glorious grace. So, what on earth is this purification ritual that I've been mentioning? Um, and to understand this, we're going to turn to baptism. Because baptism was not invented by Christians. Baptism existed long before Christianity. Jewish people were doing baptism. And so again, understanding the old way is going to help us understand the radical difference of the new way. So baptism is a purification ritual. It's very, very common. Um, in the Old Testament, what happens is uh, God sets up various rituals like, um, like baptism, a, a sort of symbolic ritual purification with water. And sacrifice is the other one that you will maybe have heard of, that you sacrifice an animal to represent repentance and apology and trying to draw God near. And what would happen is when these purification rituals would happen, priests who were uh, designated as holy characters in the community. So we've had prophets, and now we've got priests, another really important office role in the old world. And what they would do is they would take the blood um, or this water and they would sort of sprinkle it around uh, the temple, the community. And what they were doing was they were symbolising God cleansing the sin away, the kind of environmental damage that's done by people's selfishness. And and so people would undergo these rituals constantly. But the narrative of the Old Testament is that people were doing them and then sort of doing the same mistakes and then doing them again. And it kind of became a oh, well, I can sin because I can go back and do the ritual again and then it's fine. Nothing's actually changing. People know the law, they know the rules, they know the rituals, but their hearts aren't changing. And so this is, this is the setup. This is what people thought baptism was. So when John at the end says, I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit, that's one of those moments where it's like, what, what on earth is that? What are you talking about? What does it mean, baptise you with the Holy Spirit? And this is what's so exciting about this, is that instead of having this ritual purification that had to be done constantly, what John's promising is an instantaneous spiritual purification with no catch, no expectation that you go away and do something else, um, but 
that you meet with Jesus, you see him, you meet him, and you are instantly purified, permanently, forever, eternally, made right but with God, by God. And I think this is really, really interesting because if you look at religion, I teach a lot of religion, um, and that's my job, so I get to see the patterns of world religions. And one of the patterns is this purification ritual. This idea that if you do X, Y, Z, you will be purified. You will be made right with either your deity. And even nowadays, if you look at sort of, um, kind of on Instagram and TikTok and all these, you know, this kind of purification process, if you eat right and exercise right and do yoga and be kind and this, that and the other, then you'll be right with yourself and you'll be right with your community. Um, and it's the same message. It's not new. If you do X, Y, Z, you'll be purified. And yet, here is the story which says something completely different. You don't have to do X, Y, Z. It has been done for you. All you have to do is see that man standing there in the water, meet him, and it's done. And I think that is quite an exciting radical message in the context of no one else is... We can't help ourselves. We can't help it. We just have these systems where we think, I'll do this. I'll, I'll be in a do this and it's okay, I'll do this. That is not the message here. It is not about this kind of spiritual flagellation and discipline over time. It is about just meeting with Jesus. And so God purifies through relationships. He doesn't purify through ritual. He purifies through this relationship. He says, instead of having priests who are going to sprinkle blood around and are going to follow these laws, I'm going to send someone who is completely holy, who you can meet. And that's going to be me. That's going to be me. It's not going to be, another, it's not going to be just a messenger, just a person. I am going to uh, meet you where you are. And I think that's really important because Mark's story is that the people around Jesus are a disaster. <laughs> they don't get Jesus. You know, the disciples, if you look at some of the things they said, um, in John's Gospel, right before Jesus is crucified, you know, the disciples are going, yeah, but Jesus, if you could just show us who God is, and Jesus is like, I mean, are you serious? Come on, this, this has been the whole thing. His disciples are, and everyone who meets him are a bit of a disaster, but it doesn't matter because they've met Jesus. That's the thing. That's the important radical message. And so even those people, even us, um, are given this job of being able to meet Jesus and then um, going out into the world. And the final thing that I want to talk about is what does this mean um, for us living today? And I think one of the um, main messages of the entire gospel and the four gospels, and Jesus' number one talked about topic, and I may have mentioned this last time, I can't help it because I just think it's amazing. Um, but he's the kingdom of God is his main thing, the kingdom of heaven. I think nowadays we have this view of heaven being something out there. If you remember what I said at the beginning, this idea of the kingdom, this invisible spiritual realm settling on us where we are. That because we're made holy, because we don't have to go to a priest, we don't have to go to a temple, we don't have to go to an altar and a sacrifice, we are holy, we are made the temple because we've met Jesus, we are purified inside and out permanently. The kingdom is us, we are the kingdom. And as we go about our day, having met with Jesus, we shine a light, shine a sort of keyhole into the kingdom of heaven in our everyday lives. And I think that is an incredible responsibility, but also an absolute joy, because all you have to do 
choosing to be in the kingdom is being close to Jesus and let his radiance shine through you, just like John the Baptist did. And if we do that, then we are being a little slice of the kingdom of heaven on earth. That is what we're here to do. And all we need to do to do it is to draw near to Jesus and let his radiance shine through. The king is here. The kingdom is here. It is Jesus. It is us. So, I think as a final reflection, I think it's worth thinking how close are we to Jesus. And um, Rich talked about this last week, where even if you feel like you have drawn close to Jesus, maybe still there's that still element of, I need to you know, be better at this, that, and the other. I need to have more discipline here, there, and the other. And actually, all those things like just be useful in life, that's not the point. This message is about drawing close. So wherever you are on your journey, perhaps um, you've felt close to Jesus for a long time, but you feel like, I need to just really reflect on what that means. Perhaps like John the Baptist's followers, you're on the bank peering in, sort of dipping your toes in the water thinking, you know, maybe I want to draw a bit closer. Maybe you're far away watching from a distance and not really sure. But I think that radiance is drawing everyone in. And to receive that instant purification without having to do anything, there's no catch, there's no, oh great, well now you need to just go away and do these ten things. That's not the story. Jesus wants to call everyone to draw close to him. Um, And so I think after we're going to have a little time of reflection, just to respond to that, to think about where you are, um, we're going to maybe have some music and just have a little chance to reflect and think. But how close are you to Jesus? What does it mean to you to draw close to him and to let his radiance shine through and to um, point to this king and let him take the lead? <laughs>